Hello, good, good morning. You guys can grab your seats, close up your conversations and grab your seats. It's not working. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's John, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and very, very grateful that you are with us today. We're going to start with a reading from God's Word, so I encourage you to stand if you're able, and uh, I will read this for us from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star, his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will, be, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me, so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. Well, this is the second week we're looking at this passage. Last week we looked at the story of the Magi, and this week we're going to look at the story through the lens of another character in, in this passage, Herod. So the Magi, they come uh, to Herod, and they say this, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So the rising star for the Magi is this invitation, as we saw last week. It's an invitation for God, from God for these Magi to come and worship. And it's something that is in their world. So these Magi are, are astronomers. They're looking at the stars. But it's something that's also slightly off. It's, it's a rising star, and we're not 100% sure what that means. But it's something that also shakes up their, their perspective on the world. And this is what invitations from God look like. They're things that we're gazing at, but they're slightly off. They're inexplicable in some way. And the announcement that these magi make to Herod, this verse that I just read, is another version of a rising star. Because it's these inexplicable people that come into Herod's kingdom, and they give him this inexplicable message, this message that shakes him up, that there's this new king that's going to be born. And last week, we looked at the response of the magi to the star that they had. There was four things that they did. First, they paid attention to the star. The second is that they were open to the work of God, this possibly being a message from God, that God was trying to say something to them. The third is that they got on their camels, they took that first step in response to God's invitation, and then they brought their gifts to baby Jesus. And so this is uh, the response of the Magi that is encouraged, but today we're going to look at Herod's response to the invitation of God. So what's his response? Verse 3. When Herod heard this, when he heard this message from the Magi, he was deeply disturbed, deeply disturbed. Now, this word can mean a couple different things in English, or you can translate it some different ways. It could mean very troubled. It could mean full of fear or in deep dread or extremely anxious or distressed. 
And any time that we see deep emotion conveyed in scripture or in any story, and I'm learning also in real life, this is a moment for us to kind of like key in and wonder what's going on. As a person who's a recovering emotional robot, I'm learning how to like, oh, someone's showing deep emotion. This is a moment where maybe I should like pay attention and really focus on what's happening. And the same thing is true in scripture. And now remember Matthew, what he's doing in this gospel, in the story about Jesus, is he's trying to show us how the Hebrew scriptures, sometimes we call this the Old Testament, they find their fulfillment in this person of Jesus. So he's trying to wrap up the whole story and lead us towards the person of Jesus. And so we have to go back. To understand Herod's reaction, we have to go back a little bit and look at what the Bible says about people and power. And I mentioned Andy Crouch a few weeks ago, uh, and I I read this book, Playing God, in preparation for uh, this this sermon. I'm going to pull a few ideas from here. And I brought it because it's one of the few physical books I have. So if you want to borrow, if if some of the stuff we talk about today is of interest to you, I would strongly recommend borrowing that book and reading it. So according to the story of the Bible, we're going to go back. The person with all authority and power in the story of of the Bible and the story of the world is God himself. God is the one we see at the very first page, first chapter, just creating with the word of his mouth. That's how powerful he is. He speaks, as we looked at in our series in Genesis 1 this summer, there's no big fight as there were in most of the ancient Near Eastern creation stories. God, this God just speaks. That's how powerful he is, and he creates that way. But God shares his authority with people. He creates people, and he says, I, you are my images, I share my authority with you. And they use this word, he wants us to rule and subdue. Now that may cause some conflict in our hearts and in our minds. We might wonder what that really means. It doesn't mean that we're just going to come and destroy the earth and take it over, uh, that kind of an idea, but that we join God in the way that he's created in the world. We join with him in creating places of, of flourishing and shalom. So God shares that power with us. He gives, he gives people a high, a high sense of power and a high sense of responsibility. But as human beings, we're also highly vulnerable. The, the original um, stories use the word naked, that human beings are naked. And if you think about it, no other species is called naked. But we are as human beings. There's something vulnerable, inherently vulnerable about who we are. And if you look at us amongst the other species that are created in the story and then just in the world, human beings are by no means the most powerful. Um, they're by no means the, the uh, biggest. I think of this every time that we see a skunk or a raccoon in our neighborhood. It's like this tiny little animal, but we're like, Ay! like you know, and that's just a little thing. Never mind, um, never mind something big. So we have this kind of this paradox about what it means to be human, that we're people who are given this sense of responsibility and power, but we're also highly vulnerable. And, and living in this tension is what the, the Bible tells us about what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. So we can go to the next slide, and you can see it here. Um, so we have high authority, you know, if you're, sorry, I didn't warn you that we'd be doing some math this morning, but authority going up on on this axis, and then vulnerability going up on this axis, and that's what it means, to be in that top right-hand quadrant is, is part of the picture of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we're people who are vulnerable, but we're also people who are given authority in the world. But the problem is that it's really hard to live in this tension, because we want to relieve the vulnerability that we feel. That's not usually a, a positive feeling for us, that we, we feel vulnerable. And so we want to move in that direction. 
And we also are people who want more authority than we actually have. We want to get the authority that we crave. This is what happens just a few stories later in the Bible in chapter 3. The people meet this, this snake, which is a really odd character, but it's this dark person in the, or, or character in the story that comes and promises them those exact two things. It says, if you eat the fruit from this tree, you w- will not die. You can have minimize your vulnerability, and you will be like God. You can maximize your authority. And so go to the next one here, Caleb. The, the snake promises them this, that you will be invulnerable, and your authority will go from being authority underneath God to having ultimate authority. You will be like God. And so it promises to move them into that upper left-hand quadrant. But this creates three problems, at least in the Bible. Or I'm just going to summarize it in three problems. The first, obviously, is that the people are removed from God's presence. On the right-hand quadrant, we're made in the image of God, and you could put God above that, that we reflect God. God is the ultimate authority, but we have authority as his people. On the left, when we try to take ultimate authority with God, uh, from God, we come in competition. And in the story of the Bible, the people are then removed from the garden. They're removed from the presence of God because they're trying to place themselves as gods themselves in competition with him. And so that's the first problem, and the people then are kicked out of God's presence. And this puts them into a place in the story of ultimate vulnerability. They're sent out into the desert. But there's also two other problems that I really want to focus on today. That's probably the biggest one, that we're removed from God's presence. But there's two other ones that that we want to focus on. And this is where we come back to the story of Herod. The first is that it creates a personal problem for us. Because in this gospel so far, in the gospel of Matthew, and even far into the gospel, Herod is the most powerful person that we're going to meet in this story. He's very high authority, but we'll see that he's still vulnerable. Even in his quest to become invulnerable, he still is a vulnerable person. And here's a few things that that we wouldn't know as 21st century readers of this, this text, but that people originally reading the text would know about Herod. The first thing is that Herod was not the, he's the ruler of, of Israel, he's the king of the Jews, but he's actually an illegitimate king. So we spent a couple weeks looking at the genealogy of Matthew, and one of the points from that is that if you're going to be a king, if you're going to be anyone important at that time, your genealogy is kind of like your resume. So we want Jesus to have this really great genealogy, which is why Matthew gives it to us. He's showing that he's the true king of Israel. Um, And if you uh, paid attention to Matthew's genealogy, the first three people in the genealogy are uh, Abraham and then Isaac. And then the third generation... Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. In Matthew's genealogy, Jesus is descended from Jacob. But Herod is what's called an Edomite, which means that he's descended from Esau. So his lineage is not the correct lineage for him to become a king. So he's a vulnerable person just because of his genealogy and his resume. Even though he's the king right now, he knows that if someone comes with a better resume, they can take over from him. And here's how one historian says Herod uh, got his power. It says, Herod acquired the throne via power politics, not via the right lineage, not via a, a parental lineage where his father passed down the power to him. He acquired it via power politics, that is, through shrewd maneuvers by his father and his own cutthroat tactics to remove every possible rival. So even though Herod is the king in the story, he's an illegitimate king, and that means he's ultimately vulnerable. And so he's deeply distressed when he hears that there might be this news of a new king. The second thing is that Herod is a puppet king. So Herod is the king over Judah, um, but his true power comes from Rome. They had taken over that whole area. 
And so even though, again, he's the most powerful character that we see in this story, there's a power behind him that if, if they pulled their power away from, from Herod, he would lose his power. He's ultimately a vulnerable person, even though he is uh, the most powerful person, again, that we see. And then finally, Herod, uh, Rome was to the west of Judah. And so Herod knew that he and his kingdom were protected from the west. But he knew that he was vulnerable from the east. And of course, where did these magi come from? The magi come from the east. And they say that there's this new king that's going to be born, that's going to be the king of the Jews. And, and so what's going on in Herod's mind? As a person that, although he has power, he's, he knows he's vulnerable. He might be thinking, man, these guys might have some knowledge about some king that's born here that's a king from the east that's going to come and take over my throne. And so he's vulnerable in all of these ways. And that's why Herod is deeply disturbed. His chase to become like God and become invulnerable has created this personal problem for him. And I think this example shows us two things that are really important for ourselves here. First is that you can never get, fully get rid of your vulnerability. In this quest to become invulnerable, you can never fully get rid of it. Because like we see, Herod is the, is the most powerful person in this narrative so far. But he shows he's still, in, he's still vulnerable in some ways, and that's what makes him deeply distressed. And the Bible would say that if we put our hope in anything other than God, once that thing is threatened, whatever it is that's pushing us over into that corner, that's promising us to become invulnerable and give us ultimate authority, whenever that thing um, is threatened, we'll, we'll, when we realize that we're vulnerable, we'll become deeply disturbed. This will be our response as well. But the second thing that we notice is that there's a lie at the heart of the promise. See, for Herod, the throne that he has is kind of like the snake in Genesis 3. It promises him the power that he craves. It promises him a lot and only asks him for a little bit. And this is the nature of God's substitutes. They always do this for us. They say, just give me a little bit and I'll promise you a lot. That's what the snake promises the people in Genesis 3. Just take a small bite of this apple and you'll become like God, and you'll be invulnerable. That's what the promise likely was to Herod. Just double-cross these folks. Just backstab this person, and you'll hold on to the throne. You'll hold on to this power. But eventually, what God's substitutes do to us, instead of they start, like I said, they, they ask just a little bit, and they promise a lot. At the end, they demand everything, and they only offer a little bit. And this is what happened in Herod's life. Listen to what one commentator said. As Herod became older, he grew increasingly paranoid, and he had a number of his own family members imprisoned and executed. For example, his wife, the I, and later her two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. After several incidents of this sort, Caesar Augustus supposedly made the famous pun that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. See, God's substitutes always ask for more and more and more in the chase to become invulnerable and have ultimate power. And in Herod's life, this lust for power ends up with a trail of bodies behind him. More and more it asks from him, and he becomes more and more anxious, more and more paranoid, more and more disturbed over time. It reminds me a lot of uh, the book that I read once about uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. His name is Jordan Belfort. I don't know if any of you have uh, read that book. I don't necessarily recommend the movie, but um, it's about this guy who just lived this crazy life of power and uh, had everything, drugs, women, money, and just kind of more and more and more. The story increases more and more and more. And at one point in the story, he says this, I've spent my entire life trying to fill a hole that I can't seem to fill, Patricia. 
and the harder I try, the bigger it seems to get. It's the same narrative that God substitutes start by asking for just a little and promising a lot, but eventually they ask for everything. There's this hole or something that you can't fill. So what about for you and I? You know, I think it's easy to, to uh, like, look at ourselves or look at Herod and be like, well, I'm nothing like this guy. Or even Jordan Belfort, you know, the wolf of Wall Street. None of us are living that kind of life right now. You might think, like, I don't even have an ex-wife. Never mind, killed three wives and all of their children. Um, I'm not that power hungry. But let me ask the question in a slightly different way for us. What are the things in your life that you do to move away from feeling vulnerable? Or maybe ask slightly different, where are the places in your life where you feel most vulnerable, that you don't like going to? Or where are the places in your life that you seek control? Maybe power is a word that that's not, doesn't resonate well with us, but control is exactly the same thing. Where are the places in my life that I go to seek control? And this is a hard and deep question, but I've had all week to think about it, so let me, uh, let me just tell you some of mine. Um, I thought I would tell you some of yours, but I'm not, uh, that's, that's maybe not the best, the best use of this space. But let me just tell you some of mine. I'm just going to be really honest here, and, and you can just see, like, you know, the narrative of Herod, you can just see where, where, if you fit into some of these. So one of the things I think I use, and many other people use, to become invulnerable and gain control is money. Now, if you, if you ask me, are you a person who's greedy or running after money in life, I'd be like, no, I work... Almost all of my adult life, I've worked in a nonprofit. It's like right there, right in the name, not profit. Like I'm not, that's not where my life is geared. So I'm not Jordan Belfort working on Wall Street or something like that. And if you ask me if I'm using money in my life to control my life or to become invulnerable, I'd be like, what money? Uh, I was reminded this morning of, um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the movie Meet the Parents. It was like an early 2000s movie. Uh, so there's the, uh, Ben Stiller is the main character, and he's kind of, he's a male nurse. He's doing fine in life, but not great. He's getting married to this woman, and her family's quite rich. So there's this scene where they're in the um, kitchen, and uh, her, her father asks him, uh, Ben Stiller's character, he's like, how's your portfolio doing? And he's like, strong. And he's like, gives him this look, he's like, to very strong? That's not like, that's me, okay? That's my, my life. So, I, you know, it's not been a driver. If you look at me in my life, it wouldn't be like I'm chasing this. I'm, I'm a person like Herod, like I'm, you know, uh, what's the Scrooge McDuck diving into piles of gold in my house. Um, but one of the things I realized is that when we moved here, we, I always assumed that we would have a house. So I grew up in a really small town, and everybody there has a home. Unless you, even if you did screw up your life, quite royally, you probably still had a home. And it, kind of this narrative in my, in my life that good people get homes. That's just the narrative that was been spinning my entire life. And slowly, I, I wrote here slowly over time, it dawned on me that we wouldn't have a home here. That's a lie. It was like two months in, I think, where we were just like, oh, no. And I don't know if you saw this week. Actually, they, they released this uh, study that said unless you, you have to make $250,000 a year, after 35 years, you can buy a house in Vancouver. <laughs> so we're slightly out of that uh, bracket. But here's the point. How did that make me feel when I, when I came to that realization? And, and honestly, like, how does it make me feel now? Well, I, I've said this several times. Like I said earlier, I'm a kind of an emotional robot, so there's only like two or three emotions that I feel. So the first one is anger. And maybe you can resonate with that. You feel that towards people, 
And I've gone through that process myself of feeling angry towards all the normal suspects that you think of when you hear of the housing crisis in Vancouver. But I realize underneath that is actually that I feel vulnerable. I feel like I've slightly failed. Even honestly, just to stand up here in front of you and say that, it makes me feel slightly like a failure. It makes me feel vulnerable in my heart. And, and underneath that layer of anger, anger is, is a vulnerability that I want to avoid. And if I had that thing, if I had a massive bank account, or if I had a home, it would be that thing that I could go to and say, my life is under control. My life is going according to plan. So for me, that's one of the areas. What about for you? What, what are the areas? Maybe you find yourself in that same story as me. Maybe for you, it's something else. You know, a lot of us have, have kids in this, uh, in this room that we plan for our kids. We make these plans. And they're, they're good. I mean, it's not like you shouldn't plan for your kid's life. And I'd be like, I don't know. Whatever happens, happens. I don't know that that's necessarily good. But those plans can so quickly become places where we move away from vulnerability. We try to make them invulnerable and give ourselves as parents ultimate control over their lives. And that can go not just with kids, that can go with your work, that can go with your fitness life, it can go with anything. Where we make these things into God's substitutes to make ourselves invulnerable and take authority. I'll give you one more. Tim Keller's been really helpful for this in my life, but he says we also have religious idols. And one of the things for me that I've realized in my life as a religious idol is, is ministry success. I'll call it success. So I became, if, you, if you're new, I became the pastor of this church. Uh, so we've been around for about 12 years. I became the pastor just about two years ago. I, the first couple months, I thought things were going pretty well. Um, yeah, it was like, it was fun, and things were going well. Um, that's, the sum, that's, the, that's the summary. That's the report. And then uh, within a week, um, I found out that I had cancer, and then the world shut down because of a pandemic. Like, I was out of control. And ministry was out of control. And, and like nobody knew what we were doing as pastors. There wasn't like a playbook that I could go to. Like, yes, the Mennonites dealt with this in, you know, 1597. You can do exactly this thing. And it was hard. And I, I, it was just complete lock, lock, loss of control for me. And I felt very vulnerable. And I think about using this language, again, the first thing that came to my, my mind, the first emotion that I felt, anger. You know, it's like when you have, it's like sleepy, hungry, and angry, that's your emotional range. It's like pretty, which one's going to come up? Um, but it's like angry, and I felt vulnerable at that time. And it was a really hard couple of years. It still, it still is as we come back from this pandemic to understand what's success, what does it mean to be a pastor. But I realized that ministry success was one of those things that was, I was trying to make myself invulnerable. I would know that I'm doing okay because we had X amount of views online or whatever it was, those things that made me feel underneath there, I was going, trying to move away from being vulnerable in my life. And there's religious things that we do that do that. Sometimes, you know, truth is a really good thing. Doctrine is a great thing to learn about who God is and to study scripture. I mean, that's what we're doing right now. But it can be one of those things that moves us away from being vulnerable. That I'm learning about God, not to learn about him, but actually to buffer myself to him. To say, this is how you're going to act. I can keep you under control. And we remove God from being who he is in the Bible. This, this refining fire. That's a vulnerable position for us if that's who God is. That he's this refining fire that we come to him and we are changed. Or how about our moral record? This can be another thing that 
that we use. It's a religious thing that we use actually to become less vulnerable and grab authority. Because if I've been good, if I come to church, if I give, whatever it is, I can say to God, now you can't do this to me. Now you can only treat me this way. You, you have to give me good things in my life. And we use it, again, it's a great thing for us to become more like Jesus, to look more like him, but our moral record can also become a God substitute where we use it to grab authority away from God and become invulnerable with God and with each other. Here's what Michael Wilcock, one commentator, says. The God substitutes the things that offer us maximal control over our lives and our world but minimize our vulnerability. They have not changed, for the human nature has not changed. See, Genesis 1 or Genesis 3 and Herod may sound very far from us. Even Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street, may sound very diff- like far away from our current everyday reality. But they haven't changed because we haven't changed. He says, these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for themselves. What do we want? If we're modest, security, comfort, and reasonable enjoyment. I think that's like the, that should be the Vancouver motto. Vancouver, supernatural. And then just like, whatever, security, comfort, and reasonable enjoyment. That's what we're chasing here. If ambitious, power, wealth, and unbridled self-indulgence. This is Wolf of Wall Street. This is, you know, New York, Toronto. Maybe more, that's more thumbs up there. But in every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires, whatever they are, all having one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time, they appear amenable to our manipulating them so we can get what we want without losing our independence, that we get more control, more power, and become less vulnerable. Here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controlled our hearts. Or as I often say, quoting Pete Scazzaro, Jesus is in our hearts, but Grandpa's in our bones. These stories are in our bones. These God substitutes are alive and well in our heart. And I hope that maybe by being open to you guys, you can, you can consider what those things are for yourself. And I encourage you to take some time to do that. And this great community group question, what are the things that promise you control and invulnerability in your life? The things that make you deeply disturbed when they're threatened. You don't just feel anxious or nervous, but extremely anxious or nervous. So that's the first problem, or the second problem, the, the personal problem. And I spent a lot of time there because I think that's the one maybe we can relate the most to. But this chasing of this uh, idol for, for Herod of power and invulnerability also call, causes another problem, and that's a societal problem. And this might actually be the one that we're, it's easiest to see as 21st century Vancouver people. Because what happens is when a few people chase power, or when people pay, chase power without vulnerability, it just allows a few people to go up into this, this quadrant. That's where Herod lives, that's idolatry. But it creates a system where a lot of people then have to live with no authority and maximal vulnerability. And in the Bible, one of the words they would use for this is poverty. It creates poverty. And this system, go ahead, Caleb, is what the Bible calls injustice. A few people get to chase ultimate authority and become invulnerable like Herod, but it creates maximal vulnerability amongst a huge group of people and low authority, what's called poverty. And if you ever read the prophets, so, so I mention this because Isaiah is like a sister book of Matthew. There's so many quotes from Isaiah. Mitch preached from Jeremiah earlier this year. These prophets, if you read them, it's interesting because they'll often talk about idolatry 
And then they'll zoom right away to talking about poverty. They'll say, for example, you've committed adultery from God. You've, you've not kept your covenant faithfulness to him. You've gone and worshipped these other gods. And now the widow and the orphan and the marginalized cry out. That's what they're doing, is they're pointing out this dynamic here. When we chase authority and try to become invulnerable, it creates systems of injustice, which means that many people become impoverished. Maximal vulnerability and low authority. And this is what happens with Herod. Let me just read you one passage from next week's reading. Verse, chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, he flew into a rage, turned up. Again, this emotionality turned up a notch. His idol is threatened. So he gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and young, under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Idolatry is always at, it, at its heart violent. We see this very clearly in Herod, but it's true of our lives. We can't ultimately get rid of vulnerability. That's what we see in Herod. Even though he's the most powerful person, he's still deeply disturbed and very vulnerable. We can't get rid of vulnerability. The best that we can do is pass it on to other people. And so the quest to become invulnerable and have ultimate power always takes its pound of flesh. Maybe not as dramatically as we see in this story, but this is the story of our world. Our quest for control over our lives and to become invulnerable as people, to bubble wrap our lives, create systems of injustice. Maybe they're not just systems here in Vancouver, although we could point some of those out, but they're systems around the world, economic systems, other kind of systems that do violence against very vulnerable people. And you might think at this point, yeah, I agree. And this is why power and authority are, like, we don't like them here. You know, there's that, that adage that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I want to look at one last character in this story, the third royal character. So we looked at the Magi, who are probably royal uh, astronomers. We looked at Herod, who is the king of Judah. But now let's look at the third royal character, King Jesus. Now one thing is clear in this passage about Jesus. He is the king. So verse, two, verse 1, it says he's the king of the Jews. Verse 4, it says that he's the Messiah. That's the, the word for the anointed one, this ultimate king who's going to come from the line of David and free his people and restore Israel to its greatness. And he's called the ruler in verse 6. And the Bible even goes way further than this. One of my favorite passages is Philippians 2, and it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that he is Lord over everyone, everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In their mind, that's like in the whole cosmos. This is what it talks about when it talks about Jesus, maximal authority. And so we hear that about Jesus, and we hear it in the reflection of someone like Herod, and we think, like, no way. I'm not going to let this person be the king of my life. And maybe we call him king, but actually in our lives, we don't give him the authority because we're afraid of this dynamic right here, that Jesus is going to be over there, and he's going to put us into a position of, a, of poverty. And this is what we generally think about power in our world. Don't give people power because the moment that you do, they're going to abuse it. They're going to put you into a system of injustice. So we need to hear what this passage says also about Jesus. He's maximal authority, but listen to this. The Magi went on their way, and there it was. The star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. See, Jesus' is infinite authority. There's no way of getting around that in the story of Matthew, but he also comes with complete 
vulnerability. He's the great cosmic king, but he comes as a vulnerable baby, as a child, the perfect image of God. And this is the move for us. When you have great authority, and Jesus does in the story of the Bible, he is the king of everything. The point isn't to let go of your authority and move down, in a sense, to pretend that you don't have authority. And I would, I would say this is really what we talk about in our language here in, in Vancouver today as privilege. If you're, if you're not aware of the authority you have, then you're not aware of the privilege you have. But what Jesus does is he doesn't let go of his authority, but rather he maximizes his vulnerability. He embraces his vulnerability. And that's the other part of Philippians 2, the first part, that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became vulnerable. He became a human. He became vulnerable. He became a slave. He became vulnerable all the way to the point of death. And unless we see this, that these, both of these dynamics are at work in Jesus, that he is both the cosmic king, but he's also someone who comes as a vulnerable child, we'll never give him leadership in our life. The, the, the Christianese word that we use here is lordship, that we'll never allow him to be our, our God. He'll be our bro, he'll be our buddy, he'll be someone that we can talk about and come to church, but we'll never actually give him that place of authority in our lives. And we'll keep on holding to our God's, holding on to our God's substitutes and chasing control and trying to minimize vulnerability. Unless you and I see that he became poor for you and I, that he took on complete vulnerability, we'll never give him the position that he deserves as the vulnerable king, the true image of God. So if this is, is true, and this is who Jesus says, I, I just want to close with two things that I think this means for us. There's probably lots, there's lots of implications, but here's just two. The first is that we are now invited to reorient our vision of what it means to be human, to look more like Jesus. I think that our culture encourages us with a false picture of what the goal of life is. Like, I love being Canadian, but I think that this is the picture of what it means to be human, that we should have control and safety, that basically we should be middle-class Canadians. This is what's mobilized my vision of, of needing to own a home, for example, is I'm owed to be a middle-class Canadian. And so it's, it's a vision, if we think about that graph, that asks us to become invulnerable, encourages us to minimize our vulnerability and increase our control. Not all the way to Herod levels. Let's just be calm about it. Um, there's this, uh, we, we have the privilege of spending some time in Denmark. And in Denmark, they, Danish, they have this thing called Janteloven which is Yantela, it's called. And basically the whole thing is like, don't try too hard. You're not better than anyone else. And it reminded me a lot of Vancouver. It's just like, just keep it easy. Like middle class is enough. Don't go crazy. And I think that that's, that's kind of the encouragement that we have. But this vision of what it means to be human, that that's the goal of what it means to be human, makes us really susceptible to God's substitutes that help us achieve this goal, money, planning, religion, job security. And we need to see another thing about God's substitutes that I didn't get into here today, but these are good things. Those aren't evil things, but that's God's substitutes at their heart are good things that we make ultimate things. They make us promises to allow us, like the same promise that was made at the third chapter of the Bible, to become like God and to become invulnerable. But in Jesus, we see a completely different picture of what it means to be human. This picture of vulnerability, that he suffers and he dies. He becomes human, he suffers and he dies. This path and this pattern of going 
down. It's a very different picture. And then his power comes from this life submitted to God and a power of resurrection in his life. That's, that's the picture of what it means to be human in the Christian shape, is that when those moments when we run into the down points of our lives, where we run into those moments where we ultimately feel vulnerable, that we, that we come to the cross with Jesus and we look at the moment where he was the most vulnerable and we die with him, that's the invitation, not to run away from those moments, but to look at Jesus in those moments and to say, I am, I am going to become a more vulnerable person. I'm chasing what it means to be human in a way that looks like Jesus. But we don't stay there in lament. We come, we lament, we become vulnerable, but we also take on the resurrection power, that hope of that story, that U-shaped story. We're going down, we're becoming vulnerable, but we're also being raised with the power of God, the hope of the resurrection, the hope that Jesus is alive and his spirit is at work in us today. This is the vision of what it means to be human, and it's, it's very different, actually, than the vision of Canadian life. We have to allow this to shape our lives. Again, I ask this question, where do you feel the most vulnerable in your life? Where do you feel most out of control? I think this is probably the area where God wants to push in, where your God substitutes have taken over and God in his grace and his mercy is through the Holy Spirit inviting you into deeper communion with him to take the path of Jesus the path of vulnerability, to meet him at the cross, to become more like him. And not to give you more power. We're not saying that we go to those moments of vulnerability ultimately to become more powerful. I think sometimes even when we pray for each other, when we're vulnerable with each other and say, hey, can, I, you, know, can you pray for me about this? Ultimately, what we're praying is to get more control and to remove vulnerability. What if the shape of our prayers and the vision of what our lives were were different? Not that we don't want those things to be taken out of our lives, but that we actually pray that we meet Jesus at the cross. That we would become people who aren't afraid of vulnerability, but that we actually look to Jesus. And we're vulnerable with one another, and we pray for that resurrection hope, that power, the power underneath God, where he is our Lord and our Savior, and we're, put, we're coming up as new people. What if that was the shape of our lives and our prayers? So we need to reorient our vision of what it means to be human. And the second thing is that we're invited in this passage to worship Jesus. This is the appropriate response to a king, the king that looks like Jesus, the one who comes with ultimate authority but does come as a vulnerable baby. Verse 11 says this, Entering the house, the, the magi, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. This is a beautiful picture. In, the, uh, in, in that time when they were writing, this is a way of, of talking about a king that the child with his mother, it's kind of this ancient way of envisioning who a king is, but it's this beautiful picture of Jesus. He's a king, but he's a child. They enter the house, they see the child with Mary, his mother, King Jesus, and they fall to their knees and they worshiped him. This is a really important word for Matthew, worship. He uses it 10 times in the Gospel of Matthew, which is way more than anyone else, and three times in this passage, which is why I highlight it here. And there's two ultimate movements as well. To worship that are very similar. The first is to lower ourselves. We fall on our knees. That's what we see in this passage. It's to admit vulnerability in our lives, to open ourselves up and say, I need you, God. I need you. And not only God, but I need you as his family. We need each other in those moments of vulnerability to come around each other and admit that we are vulnerable people and move in that direction to become more like images of God. And, and I, I also note that there's, like a, there's a physical component to this as well. Um, the word that's used here for worship is where we get our word prostrate. 
in English, which is different, not prostate. That's a different word. Uh, that's a different sermon. Prostrate in English. But there's this, this whole physical opening up of ourselves to God. You know, in the morning, I've started to try to do this. Uh, when I wake up, you know, I, I'm probably like a lot of you, first thing I want to do is go back to sleep. When that's unavailable, I open up TSN. And then, um, you know, try to go downstairs and get some coffee, try to let Sarah go first so she can make the coffee and then have coffee. But I've started, you know, as part of my rule of life to try not getting on my phone first thing in the morning. And, and if you're like me, all of these things are rushing into your head. What I have to do? What does my calendar look like? What does this week look like? What's happening through the day? What are the deadlines I need to meet? All these different things. And I've just started opening my hands in my bed as the first thing that I do. When all these things come rushing to my mind, it probably looks a lot like I'm still sleeping. Right, good. <laughs> but I, I'm praying. Um, but it's just like that, that opening of my hands has been such a good rhythm for me. Just to physically like open and let go. I'm, I'm, these aren't, this is not who I am. I've got things to do, but it's not who I am. And as someone who struggles from getting their identity from what they do, this is a good rhythm. But physically, there's something there that we open ourselves up to God and to one another. And communion is one of these beautiful things. We physically do it together, and we're going to do that in a few minutes. Where we do it with our bodies, we come to the table together, we come and, and receive communion and say that I need to receive grace. I need to receive sustenance from God to live this life. I need to receive it from each other too. We need to do it together. And Mitch will lead us through that in a few minutes. So that's the first movement is we lower ourselves. And the second is that we raise Jesus up. And again, as we do this in, in response, we're going to sing some songs of prayer and worship. If you're someone who wants to come and pray with me or with someone else, I encourage you just to turn to somebody, ask them to pray with you, that your life would take this shape and then to raise Jesus up in your life, to praise him, to sing along with us together that he is the true risen king, the one who came as a baby, but also has all authority and invites us to follow in this shape to become people that look like him, made in the image of God. I'll invite the music team to come up as, as I close us in prayer. God, we thank you for this vision of what it means, even amidst this terrible story. And we'll look at it again next week of how sad and terrible it is of what idolatry does to a person like Herod. Um, and even though he's such, such a distant character from us, I mean, not only removed in time and space, but even for most of our lives, like we just want to live moderate lives. I pray at the same time that the warning from his life of what God's substitutes do to us, that they, that they promise much, but they offer a little in the end, that they're violent at their core and that they create systems of injustice, that we would be aware of these things. So by your grace and by your spirit, even in this time, I pray that you would root out the idols in our lives, the God substitutes, the things that we chase to try to feel invulnerable, the things that we chase to try to give us ultimate control. May you show these things to us and by your grace and through your community, I pray that you would turn us back to you. Help us now as we worship you to lift you up, to, to let go of these things, to lower ourselves and to raise you up that you may truly be in our hearts and in this community and in our lives and in our neighborhoods, the God who is reigning and ruling. So bring us into this time of worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to hold, if you're new here, I, I'm going to...